Well, good morning. You guys enjoying the warm Christmas or the warm winter this year? I was telling somebody um, earlier this morning that um, I'm glad to have this warm winter, but we do, I know, I recognize that we need the wicked cold ones too. Otherwise, we'll have too many people in Alaska. We need to, we need to thin out the herd from time to time. <laughs> but I am liking this one, so. Um, hey, we're, let's, let's uh, open our Bibles here to John chapter 18. That's where we're going to be. And uh, continuing our series, Life Through Believing. And uh, I want to just bow in prayer and uh, ask, ask for the Lord's help as we study together. So let's pray. Lord, we um, recognize that we do not have to come to this place because this is where you reside. There is no house, there is no building, there are no walls that can contain you. Uh, We come to this place, we come into these walls to be together, to corporately worship you. We're not here to sing songs of our own liking, We're not here for just an academic exercise in learning. We're not here just for the social aspect of interacting with our friends. Uh, We're not even here for the coffee out in the foyer. (laughs) Lord, we are here because you are deserving of our worship and our honor and our praise. You are the transcendent God of the universe. You are holy and righteous. You are like no other we come here this morning to bow our hearts and our whole lives in honor and worship of you. You are the supreme being of the universe and we are not. We want to tune our hearts by being here, by ascribing worship and honor to you. We want to tune our lives by being instructed by your authoritative word. So guide us in our study, in our thoughts, in our meditations. Guide us as we listen to your Holy Spirit speak to each of us on what needs to change, what needs to be confessed, what needs to be practiced. Uh, We're here to worship you through lives of obedience as well. So guide us that we might be children that you take great pleasure in. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We have two, um, in our, our legal society, our legal system, we have two kinds of trials. Uh, we have civil and we have criminal, right? And I don't profess to be uh, very knowledgeable about these things or uh, to, to be an expert in the legal system by any stretch, although my mother did think that as a child I was going to grow up to be a lawyer because I argued so much. Um, but uh, here I am, pastor instead. Um, but we have these two kinds of, of trials, civil and, and criminal. And as I understand the difference between the two, a civil trial uh, has to do uh, essentially with making sure that an offended party is made whole. Uh, this is about restitution or repaying losses for uh, some kind of offense or some kind of, um, some kind of offense that you have perpetrated on somebody else. A criminal trial, on the other hand, has more to do with the general community. It has to do with the state. It has to do with the broader audience. And it has more to do with punishment. Declaring that we as a community say that this is wrong and you shall be punished and you should be removed for, uh, from, from us for such a season of time. 
until your behavior can be corrected. So there's these sort of distinctions in, in these kinds of trials and these kinds of cases. And this morning we're looking at a case against Jesus where he is yet again on trial. And you might say that he's already had his civil trial where the religious leaders tried him about the offenses that they found in him. And now they are taking him to the Roman prefect Pilate. Uh, and they are, a sense, in a sense, taking him to the state to see that he is punished correctly for uh, their offense against him. Uh, again, the religious leaders, An- uh, Annas and Caiaphas, have already examined him, and they found him guilty of blasphemy, which in this case was claiming to be the son of God. And since they rejected his claim, they found him to be blasphemous, that is making a derogatory comment about God. And so now they take this conviction and they take him to the state and they charge him a little differently, but now the charge is insurrection. Uh, and, and, and in this charge, we find really just creative legal maneuvering so that they can get the outcome that they want. The bottom line is this, they want him dead. And they don't want to have to do it themselves. They want the Roman authorities to do their dirty work and for several reasons, one of which, as we'll see, is that they don't want to get their hands dirty and defile themselves for the holiday season. And so they're taking him to the Roman authorities. Uh, there's several things that we're going to learn in this passage and I want to highlight a couple of them at the outset so uh, you can recognize them as we go. But one of the things that stands out to me in this is the sovereign control of God uh, throughout history so that he could reveal Jesus to us and to Israel as his Passover lamb. There are specific details that are are put in order hundreds of years in advance, so that at this moment, when Jesus is killed, we would recognize him for who he is. Uh, In this passage, we see all kinds of details about Jesus' death, such as the timing, the, the, the nature of his death, or the specific method of it, the political climate that's going on that allowed for that to occur, the holiday season, all of these things sort of all together confirm what has been foretold about him. And if you remember, the Apostle John, who is the author of this gospel, has a specific purpose in mind for, for, for writing this. He's writing so that we might believe and that by believing, we would have life in his name. That's why he is writing this particular gospel. And so again, John is going to show us all of the circumstances surrounding Jesus' death in a way of sort of laying up exhibits of evidence to confirm that he is this Passover lamb that God had promised for us. So read with me in verse 28, if you would. John 18, 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, And to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. All right. Well, first of all, we see that a Roman trial was necessary for execution. Uh, and I need to give you just a little bit of history so you can see why this is the case. Um, in the year 6 AD, Judea became a Roman imperial province. 
And so they sort of came under the occupation of, of Rome. And they were governed by a prefect. And in this case, it was Pilate. Normally, that prefect would live in the region of Caesarea. That's where they, um, that's where they dwelt. But at holiday time, uh, such as Passover, they would come to Jerusalem where the crowds were so that they could sort of help maintain peace and order and all of these things, which makes it clear that holidays made people crazy 2,000 years ago too, not just today. It's not just your mother-in-law. It's, you know, everybody dealt with this. So, uh, so he would come to help maintain order, and that's sort of why he's in Jerusalem at this particular time. But one of the rights that Israel lost during this, this political arrangement when they were under occupation from Rome and sort of uh, uh, under their auspices, they lost the right of execution. They could not carry out an execution by their own authority in their own community. If there was a capital case and if they were seeking the death penalty, then they needed Rome's assistance and they would have to bring that uh, criminal uh, to them. And so that's what's happening here. So we see that the Jewish, since the Jewish leaders are seeking the death penalty, uh, and according to Jewish law, blasphemy was deserving of death. We see this from Leviticus 24, 16. And so referring to oneself as the son of God, if, if you found that, that, uh, that claim uh, to be false, well, that would certainly rise to the level of blasphemy, making a derogatory statement about God. And so here they have to take their case to uh, the Roman prefect. In fact, it's, it's probably the reason why they had Jesus tried not just once, but twice before. Remember, they took him to Annas, who was, we talked about this last week. He was sort of the power behind the office. And then they took him to Pilate, or excuse me, to Caiaphas, who actually held office at this time. And it's likely that they did that so that when they finally took him to the Roman prefect, to Pilate, they could, in a sense, say, hey, both the person in office and the one we all know as the power behind the office agree this man needs to be put to death. He's a criminal, and now we bring him to you because you have the power and authority to do that. We want you to execute him. Another thing that's happening here, and it's kind of interesting, is the Jewish leaders are actually trying to maintain their purity for Passover celebrations. If you look at verse 29, it says, By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Now, we've talked about this a little bit, but one of the literary features of the Gospel of John uh, is, if you remember, the, the uh, festival cycles. How frequently John's uh, the teaching or the teaching of Jesus that we might find in his Gospel relates to a celebration that was going at the time. Maybe it was Sabbath or maybe it was uh, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, or Passover, and frequently that happens throughout the book. And what John does, or even what Jesus does, is he sort of reaches into the holiday of, of the time and grabs the imagery or the symbol that's, that's a part of it and shows how ultimately it was pointing to him or fulfilled in him. Do you remember seeing that? A couple of nods. Some of you are still with me. Good. And here we have it again. Now it is Passover time. This is the, the festival that's, that's going on. But in this case, it's more than just a passive backdrop. But the imagery of Passover, the Passover lamb, is now going to merge right into the actual events of the sacrifice of Christ. It's not just going to be theory or teaching or pointing to, we're going to see it in effect. 
Um, let me just remind you what the, Pas- or what the Passover is all about, or for those of you who might not know. Passover was the time that Israel remembered God's deliverance of them from Egypt. Uh, and if you remember specifically, Passover recalled the final plague that God delivered on Pharaoh, who had in a closed-handed way his grip on Israel. He wouldn't let him go, though Moses was trying to lead them out with God's help. And so he delivered one plague after another on Israel, sort of prying Pharaoh's grip from his chosen people. And the last plague that he delivered was the plague of death of the firstborn. And and that was effective. And uh, so many died in Egypt that Pharaoh finally loosened his grip to let Israel go. But the way that people could prevent this judgment, uh, this plague to fall upon them, is they could go out and sacrifice a pure and a spotless lamb. And they could take some of the blood of that lamb and, and, and brush it on the door frames and the doorposts of their homes. And in so doing, that God would pass over and his judgment would pass over that home and only fall on those who did not exercise faith in that way. So that's the backdrop uh, behind this. And then after God delivered Israel, he gave them specific instructions to continue to celebrate the Passover, to remember this deliverance. And so they, for hundreds of years, would continue to sacrifice the lamb and to feast upon that. And they would eat for the week following unleavened bread, remembering their journey out of Egypt when they did not have time for their bread to rise and they had to travel with uh, bread without yeast in it, unleavened bread. And so this celebration was going for hundreds of years and as a way of looking back and remembering what God uh, had done here. Uh, And it was a day, it was a celebration that they loved, the same way that we love to celebrate Easter. And we look back at something that God has done, and we feast and we celebrate together. Or the way that we celebrate Christmas, the same kind of thing. We celebrate that God has freed us from our sins and gave us his son, Jesus. In In the same kind of way, it's a looking back and it's a celebration. But one of the things that that uh, the Jewish people would do to, to keep themselves pure and to protect themselves so they wouldn't be defiled and, and that they could continue to celebrate this is that they would not go into the home of a Gentile uh, who, whose home might have had yeast in it. They would prepare themselves in their homes by sweeping the home clean of yeast prior to the celebration. And they did not want to miss out on the feasting. So they would make sure not to go in some place, a Gentile's home, where yeast might be present. Now the Apostle John is, he's an interesting figure as an author. He particularly likes irony. And anytime we find it, he is sure to point it out. And he points it out here. Because what we find is that these religious leaders do not want to defile themselves and miss out on the feast. So they won't even go into the Roman palace to make sure that they keep themselves clean. How ironic that they are bringing an innocent man to be executed one who is falsely accused, and yet they're trying to maintain their purity. They are seeking an execution with their pinky up. That's what they're doing. And the Apostle John is happy to point out the irony here. Now, if you're reading this carefully or if you're listening carefully, there should be a question that that comes out to you, and that is this. When exactly is the Passover? In other words, we're told here, this this is Friday morning, And we're told here that the Jewish leaders did not go into the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover, right? But didn't Thursday night 
Jesus and his disciples eat the Passover together. So here we have what appears to be a chronological uh, conflict. And so there's some questions about that. And there's two really good answers for this. Either one or even both uh, are very possible. The first one is this, that the celebration of Passover lasted more than a week. In other words, there was a feast, an initial feast of Passover. And then the week following was uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they would continue to celebrate and continue to have lots of meals. Uh, you might think about our celebration of Thanksgiving, right? We have Turkey Day, and then we have turkey sandwiches, right? And so it's very likely that that was part of the thing, and they didn't want to miss the leftovers. So that's, that's maybe one way of, of looking at that, and that's very possible. Uh, the second sort of answer to this potential conflict, I think, is even better um, and it has to do with uh, the fact that there were two different methods of calendaring, okay? Uh, in other words, in fact, you can see on the back of your notes, I put some, uh, some additional things there. There were some, some Galileans, and particularly those from the north, the Pharisees as well, who calendared, as they looked at a day, they would measure a day from sunrise to sunrise. But there were others, there were some southerners that calendared a day, counting it as sunset to sunset, and so if you picked a particular day on, you know, let's say Nisan 14, which is the day of Passover, well, it depends on how you count the day. In other words, you could celebrate it as Jesus did on this Thursday before, right? From, from sunrise to sunrise. And if you calendared from sunset to sunset, then as these religious leaders did, you would celebrate it the next day. Let me illustrate it a little, a little more uh, common way. How many, hopefully this works out better than first service, so I have more faith in you all. <laughs> Christmas time. How many of you had your big Christmas meal on Christmas Eve? I see hands, nice and bold. Help me make my point. Yeah, same thing, like nine of you. I don't know. How many of you had your big meal Christmas Day? Some of you apparently didn't eat at all. I don't know what you were doing. <laughs> now, we do that as a matter of convenience, right? What sort of fits best with our schedules. Some of you had two celebrations, especially if you've got multiple family in town. And so these are the kinds of things uh, behind the fact that Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples, and yet these religious leaders are here, not wanting to be defiled so that they can still yet celebrate Passover. Uh, so just to answer that question for you, if that was this troubling for you. I think the second one actually has more to, uh, to commend it here. What we also see is that by enlisting the help of Rome here, and this is fascinating to me, that the predicted manner of Jesus' death actually is fulfilled. Look at verse 32. It says, This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. In other words, our narrator, our author, the Apostle John is saying, this is the point. Understand this. This is what I want you to get. This is why I've told you these things. This is the critical point. Don't miss this. So on several occasions, Jesus has declared that he would be lifted up, right? And this particular expression, lifted up, is an idiom that means crucifixion or refers to crucifixion. The same way if I, if I was going to tell you, man, I'm going to string you up, you would know specifically what kind of death I was going to give to you, right? Or if I said, we're going to stretch your neck, you know, you wouldn't take that as a massage. You would, you would, you would know what I'm, what I'm talking about there. We would understand that to be a hanging. And so in the same way, when Jesus predicts that he would be lifted up, he's referring to 
crucifixion, being lifted up on a cross. And we see him uh, make this specific claim in John 3, in John 8, and in John 12. Uh, In addition to that, in Isaiah 53, more than 700 years before the crucifixion of Christ, we see Isaiah prophesy that the coming Messiah, the suffering servant, would be pierced for our transgressions. In addition to that, we see the psalmist in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, in a messianic psalm proclaiming this statement, pierced my hands and feet. In other words, not only from Jesus' own lips, but from the prophets hundreds of years before was a prediction of the kind of death that he would die. Now, why, why am I going to all the gory details here? I'll tell you. Customarily, for a Jewish execution or for, for the, the death penalty that was carried out by a Jewish community, it would be done by stoning. And that was their method. It was their way of saying, we as a community abhor and condemn what you have done such that we all will condemn you by taking your life. And that was their method of execution. And so what we see here is that the details of Jesus' death, that it is by crucifixion, shows us all kinds of things that the timing, the nature of it, the political environment, and even the fact that it was a holiday season, that it was Passover time, all of that together fulfills what has been foretold. We see the knowledge and the power and the control and the sovereignty of God in predicting this death, specifically in the method that it would occur. Uh, That all serves for us, again, as evidence hard evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. He is not just an unfortunate victim of death, but he died precisely when and precisely how and precisely for the reasons that God had sent him. And that is to be our Passover lamb. John again is writing his gospel so that we might believe that he is the Christ and that by believing we would have life in his name. And so all of this serves again as evidence. God gives us the gory details so we could recognize him for who he is, the Passover lamb. And I want, I think by way of application, I think we should be absolutely comforted by this. I know maybe it sounds like an ugly thing to be comforted by the death of Christ and the manner in which it happened, but we should be comforted to see his power and his sovereign control. No plan of God can be thwarted. No plan of God can be thwarted. He knows the future and not earthly powers or betrayal or injustice or even a busy holiday season can get in the way of what God is doing. In fact, I think it's interesting here that it is corruption and injustice and even death. These are tools in God's hands that he can use to carry out his perfect redemptive plan. And so if you're going through a season right now and you find these things to be going on around you, and you're wringing your hands in anger and frustration and saying, God, where are you in this? Be comforted. No plan, nothing can thwart the plan of God. He is never, he is never out of control. And we see this principally in this particular event. For me personally, I tell you, one of the ways that I'm thinking about this, just be real transparent with you, I'm in a particular season of my life where I feel a great deal of stress. 
We are uh, in the middle of a capital campaign trying to raise $5 million for an expansion project. Anybody ever done that before? I haven't. It scares me to death. We're in a growing church with more and more demands. And I love you all, and I love to care for you as your pastor. But you stretch me at times, I'll just say. In addition to that, we're losing Pastor Keith this year. He's retiring. I've pastored with Keith for over 12 years now. We have a lot of comfort in one another, and I have a lot of comfort in going across the hall and counseling with him. We're going to be bringing on, Lord willing, a new worship pastor. And we're going to have to learn to worship along with this fella. And I'm going to have to learn how to make decisions and how to shepherd alongside him. Um, We have all kinds of things that are going forward. We're going to be building a building here. They're going to break ground and there's going to be sawdust and noise and power outages and all kinds of unknown, unforeseen things. And I want to tell you, I look at all of these things ahead of me. And if it were not for a confidence in the sovereign control and providence of God, I would be terrified but we do have a God that's in control. And I cannot wait to look and to see how he providentially cares for us. And so I'm reading this passage and I see that all of these things that God brought together from the escape of Egypt to the time of Christ's death and how everything perfectly integrated together. And I think, God, surely you've got my little season. Surely you've got control of this. Let's move on. Verse 33 here. We see that Pilate uh, tries to release Jesus. Uh, This might sound like the wrong kind of thing to say, but I'm a little bit sympathetic of Pilate. (laughs) Listen to this poor sap. He wants out of this predicament with everything in him, but just kind of listen as we go. Verse 33. Pilate then went back inside to the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, and if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest uh, by the the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. What is your custom? Or, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Well, we find something interesting here. Jesus is found to be innocent. Uh, And I think the innocence of Christ in this case kind of goes to serve a dual purpose as, as the Apostle John includes it here. First of all, it helps us to identify him as the Passover lamb. That's John's argument, that this is the Passover lamb. God's lamb provided for us. And in the... You have to understand about a Passover lamb, when a family was going to sacrifice, when they would go out to their herds and they would pull one who was a pure, spotless, one-year-old lamb. And that's what they would sacrifice for the family. The innocence sort of of this lamb, or at least a symbol of its purity, would be reflected by choosing one that was spotless. 
And so as Jesus is going to serve as our, our Passover lamb, his innocence or his purity uh, must be noted. And I think that's what the apostle John is doing here, but even by including this statement of Pilate that he finds no charge against him. And so even though Jesus dies with a criminal record, he is not, uh, he is innocent of any crime in any sin. And so we see his, his innocence being remarked here. Uh, in addition, Understand the, the festival of the day. Put yourself as, as, but, as much as you can in, in the historic period here. All of Israel is celebrating the Passover. Lambs are being slaughtered left and right. Everybody is roasting a lamb. I mean, when we, when we go into someone's house for Thanksgiving, the aroma of this turkey that's been roasted for hours is overwhelming, right? If you live in a, a small sort of an apartment building or something, you're going to get smells from everywhere. So if you can imagine at this particular time at this celebration, everybody is preparing themselves for Passover. Everybody has cleaned their houses and gotten rid of the yeast. Everyone has sacrificed a lamb. There's blood everywhere, right? They're roasting their animals. They're sacrificing their lambs. And God the Father is slaughtering his own Passover lamb. And he's, he's slaughtering this lamb for the sins of mankind. And so I think the innocence here shows us something critical. It shows us his sinlessness and his purity, which qualifies him as our Passover lamb. And that's what John would have us take from this. The second aspect of Christ's innocence is that there's there's no evidence to support the charge against him that he is leading a rebellion against the state. That's not his agenda. In fact, I think what's happening here is it's highlighting that what Jesus' mission actually is. In other words, he's not here to establish this earthly political realm. He's not trying to overthrow Caesar. He's not running for office and he's not trying to deliver Israel from Roman oppression. He is here to deliver mankind from their sin. That's his mission. That's what he's after. And so again, we find not just a quaint biblical story or an interesting you know, courtroom drama or something like that, but what we find here is the substance of the gospel that God gave us his own son, Jesus Christ. And he sacrificed him as our Passover lamb so that the wrath of God would not fall on us, but it would pass over us and fall squarely on Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you this morning, if you have not responded to that in faith, I have initially some very bad news for you. You are still under the judgment and the wrath of God. We were all born into this world inherently sinners with, with a guilty conscience, with sin upon us, and with an inclination to sin. And we've added to that with sin after sin after sin. We are sinners by birth. We are by birth under the wrath and the judgment of God. And we need his wrath to be assuaged. We need it to pass over us. We need it to pass somewhere, and it needs to go to Jesus Christ. And if you have not responded in faith and accepted him as your sacrifice, as, as the substitute for your sins, you are still under judgment and condemnation. And I don't want to twist your arm to make a decision, but I want to invite you. You have an important decision to make. God gave his son that your guilt would not be counted against you, but that it would be counted against Jesus, that you might be saved. And all you need to do is to respond in faith. Declare, Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner. 
forgive me. I accept Jesus Christ as my substitute, as my sacrifice, so that my sins would be cleansed. And I want to follow you. And that is all it takes. And as we see here, that as the passage goes on, not only is Jesus our sacrificial lamb, he claims to be our king. He, he makes the statement, my kingdom is not of this world. And, I, and I, again, I think this is absolutely critical to understand that the rebellion and the coup and the insurrection that Jesus is leading here is not just against political powers, it's spiritual in nature. Jesus is rescuing us from the bondage of sin, not any earthly ruler. The Apostle Paul gets this just right in Colossians 1 where he says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so I want you to understand this. Make no mistake, even though Jesus is this pure and spotless lamb with all the warm, cuddly images that that brings to mind and that he was sacrificed for us so that God's wrath would pass over us, he claims here simultaneously to be our king. And, you know, we don't have a king in this country. We sort of hate that idea, the idea of a monarch or a sovereign. We reject it. We like democracy. We want to be in control, masters of our own fate, right? That's the American way. And so we probably have a misunderstanding of this. And we probably have too, too low a view of the kingship of Christ. He absolutely is an innocent lamb, but he is also a king with authority. He is more than just our savior. He is our ruler and our sovereign. He is our king. He commands our allegiance. He commands our worship. He commands our obedience. There is no corner of your life that he is not an authority over. There's no corner of your life that you can withhold from him. But amazingly here, the crowd will not have Jesus as their king. Listen to this passage. Read along with me. John 19, 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Can I just... Don't you sympathize with Pilate? This is a brutal situation for him to be in. He went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak with me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. 
Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. A couple of things that we see here. First of all, we see that Jesus went willingly to his death. Of all of the powers, of all of the demonstrations, of everything he could have laid out there to escape from this situation, he did not. He protested and he responded with the truth whenever it was uh, necessary, but he went willingly to his death. He did not look for a mistrial. He did not look for a way out. And what is amazing to me here is that the people accepted an earthly substitute for their eternal king. The crowd will not have him as their king. This is amazing to me when they make this statement, we have no king but Caesar. They hate Caesar. They hate him. They hate his role in their life. They hate the fact that they've lost their prerogatives of government and their self-autonomy. They hate that they're this province under him. They have no love for him. He is a godless Gentile. And here they're willing to say, we have no king but Caesar, instead of accepting Christ as the authority of their life. And it's easy to stand back and to criticize, but I want to ask you the following question in in closing here. Who is your king? Who is your sovereign? Who is the authority in your life? Before you answer to yourself, think about it. Because it's so easy to say, oh, it's Jesus. It's the Lord. Absolutely. But is it? For how many of us is it money or work or reputation or family or autonomy or passion? Friends, having a good time, your business, your goals and your ambitions. Who is your king? Who has rule and reign over your life? And I want to close with this statement. It is either Jesus or it is some insufficient thing and it will fail you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the encouragement that we find in this passage that you have all things in control. You can tell Moses to go and get your people out of Egypt and deliver them in such a way that they would have a celebration to look back on it and yeah, that it would be a celebration that would look forward to what you were doing with your own son, Jesus. You enacted a holiday, a holy day, Passover, that pointed squarely to Christ, giving us the hope that your judgment and your wrath can pass over us and fall on him because he is our sacrificial lamb. So thank you for Jesus as our savior and our rescuer. And God, we recognize we must also claim him as our king. Meaning we need to yield our lives to him. He needs to be the object of our worship. Our lives need to be carried out in obedience to him. So God, if there is anything in our hearts that takes rightful place, of sovereignty and authority in our life, then I pray that we would renounce it, we would confess it, and we would rightfully replace King Jesus as our sovereign. Guide each one of us to respond as you would have us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.